happy to talk to you this morning, Adam Peshek of Stand Together. Uh, yesterday, the fifth state in two years passed universal school choice. What do you make of it? Yeah, I mean, I think it's uh, the end of a long process. I mean, we've been pushing school choice since Milton Friedman, you know, 50 years ago. Um, and you know, uh, for the first 10 years, 1990 to 2000, we had lots of small programs. And then we started to see a wave, you know, in the mid 2000s. And I think this is kind of the culmination where we see a lot of lawmakers who are um, looking around for how they can do to impact education. And one of those things they think is really empowering families with uh, education dollars to kind of uh, create new and unique learning environments, get access to schools they otherwise wouldn't have access to. Um, and it's great. You know, uh, ESAs have been around since 2011. So we're, you know, just at the 12 year anniversary of the first one in the past couple of years. We now have, you know, four, now five ESA programs that are universal in nature, meaning every family in the state, for the most part, can get access to their education dollars to go to a school of their choice. And so I think it's fantastic. We've been working on it for a long time, and it's great to see it kind of uh, picking up steam. I mean, it's kind of surprising to me. Yesterday, Arkansas joined the group. So for Missourians, just so you know, Iowa to the north and Arkansas to the south, families can take their state money to any school that they choose, public, private, religious, homeschooling, um, where I think we're going to get surrounded by it. But I do find it to be surprising kind of how fast these states have joined the ranks. I thought when Arizona did it a year and a half or so ago, it was pretty shocking. The big deal was made out of it. And now we've got Utah, West Virginia, Iowa. And Arkansas and a few other states considering it still in this legislative session, which is really, really incredible to me. And I think folks are still trying to Missouri, we're considering and we have a good chance, I guess, as of a vote yesterday of just getting open enrollment and still hearing a lot of the what what will happen if schools advertise? Will this take apart public schooling? Will our small rural schools that we love have to close? Will you know, and I keep saying like we are building up evidence from decades now around open enrollment, around charter schools, and now around ESA, so we can know that Arizona has had this open enroll complete uh, call it you want school voucher system ESA program where everyone can have a scholarship to go to the school of their choice. Now for a year and a half, public schooling is alive and well in Arizona, so it has not yet equaled the demise. But what I wanted to ask you about is, um, I'm hearing anecdotally that we're having some implementation problems. And now we've added a fifth state. Do we have the infrastructure in this country? Do we have the technology to make these things work? Or are they actually rolling out faster than we're going to be able to manage? Well, I mean, I think I'm, they need to be rolling out in order to have the infrastructure. It's a chicken and egg problem. I think for a long time, education reform and policy circles have been like, we need to build the infrastructure before there's a market, which doesn't make any sense, right? And so... Um, you know, I, I wrote a piece that you mentioned uh, that came out today for the Fordham Institute um, back in 2015. Um, you know, the, we had Arizona, we had Florida that passed in 2014. And then uh, in 2015, we had uh, Tennessee, uh, Mississippi and Nevada all pass ESA programs. And these concerns existed back then. No one really knew how are these going to happen? We heard, you know, Arizona Department of Education had boxes of receipts that were like hiding in a basement that, you know, parents weren't getting reimbursed and parents were frustrated and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, we went out and searched for health savings account administrators to figure, hey, maybe they can help out on this. And we got some nibbles. You know, we the reform community was cold calling people to figure out, hey, can you come help us with this? Jump to today. You know, we're not it's not a perfect setting, but 
or not, it's not a perfect setup, but we have a handful of now of uh, kind of ESA dedicated administrators who, you know, do the technology backend, can help approve receipts, can help families go into kind of an education shopping portal where they can take approved education services and products. Um, so the market's catching up, and that only happened because all of these states started passing these programs. Um, and so I think infrastructure comes along with the programs, um, and the more the market grows, the more that we'll be able to have more of these. People use the, the health savings account <clears throat> analogy a lot, and I think it's a good one, but the reason why health savings accounts are so stable and you know fraud-proof and, and you know consumer-friendly is that they're just diffuse in the market. There's billions and billions of dollars out there that are doing it. So there's an incentive for these organizations to come in here and and do this work. And so I think that's what's happening right now in education. The market is enabling some of the infrastructure to be built up. I think so. We we did a podcast with the CEO, I believe, of Class Wallet. And that's one of the apps that many states have turned to to administer the program. And you know, Class Wallet gets to keep a, a tiny percentage of every transaction. And so if not Class Wallet, then I can only imagine that other entrants to the market will show up that do a better job than Class Wallet. I know Arizona originally had debit cards, right? And the magnetic stripe was supposed to be. So we've tried a few different things, but I still get this from lawmakers, like, how will it work? I'm like, well, you know, we make um, uh, we make um, TAMF benefits work. We make Pell Grant system work. Like, we can figure out the technology, but I do feel like we're going through a little bumps. The other story that's been out a little bit within ed reform circles anyway, that I think the opponents of school choice are trying to make a big deal of is uh, using Arizona as an example. Parents are using their ESA money on crazy stuff like going to SeaWorld or chicken coops or I don't know, you know better than I do, whatever things that, you know, my kids went through public schools and they certainly went to amusement parks when they were in high school. That was not out of the question. And chicken coops sound pretty OK. But what do you think is going to happen with that? Is there going to be a shakeout where we're all going to get used to it or are they going to put up tighter guardrails around parents? Yeah, I mean, I kind of put um, ESA spending into like three different categories. There's the objectively good category that no one has a problem with. You know, sending your kid to a private school. If you have a student with a disability, using that for therapies, tutoring, things like that. Um, objectively fine. Everyone should be okay with it. Um, then there's the objectively bad, like using ESA dollars for, you know, uh, food, alcohol, to, you know, buy a car. Things that I think everyone would say objectively should not be spent. And then there's probably like the huge gray area of things that are subjective. Um, and I think it's a lot of these subjective expenses that are raising eyebrows. And uh, there was uh, the education publication, the 74 ran a story highlighting some of them. I think they um, I think they got a lot of the information from uh, like Facebook parent groups and, and listservs of parents asking each other questions about the program and expenses. And they found a long list of things, um, you know, like you said, chicken coops. Yeah, I, ice skating uh, lessons, uh, puzzles, chicken coops, uh, yeah, tickets to SeaWorld, uh, Taekwondo classes, lots of different things that I read it, and I wasn't that concerned. I mean, I think the funny thing is, um, and Mike Goldstein wrote an article, again, for the Fordham Institute on this, where he said, all of these things are done in public schools. I mean, think about some of the experiences that last with you the longest. They might have been a field trip. They sure. might have been things that you were doing outside the traditional school building. Um, even found uh, the the, or the website Donors Choose, where teachers can go in there and to solicit different uh, 
um, donations for different projects, he found five pages of public school teachers soliciting funds for chicken coops because there's value in helping raise chickens, all that kind of stuff. So I think from my perspective, um, lock down the objectively problematic um, expenses, um, automate to the extent possible the objectively fine ones, and then give lots of latitude to people to do some of these subjective expenses because you know, if all we're doing is creating ESAs to have kids go to traditional schools and sit down for six court, you know, six classes a, a day and all that kind of stuff, we're, we're missing a real opportunity to innovate and create new types of education. That I think parents, particularly post pandemic, are really clamoring for. That's right. You know, I uh, back in the day, I used to work at the National Association of Public Charter Schools and often heard that charter schools were a, tre- uh, a trend. They were fad. They were going to go away. They, you know, and I still still read often from opponents of charter schools that they don't work because they don't there's no proven uh academic impact from charter schools and in missouri in the last week at a hearing on open enrollment one of the opponents of the bill stood up and said there is no research that shows that there's a positive academic impact from open enrollment programs and that kind of burns me up when i read that right because that's a throwaway argument it's coming out of a system in missouri anyway that's kind of failing right our our NAEP scores are tanking. And so they're defending their system and saying that this other system that's untried and untested, there's no proven academic impact. And um, to me, that's like uh, one potential benefit of letting parents choose, but there's so many others. Don't you think that's kind of a, a, a straw man argument? Yeah. And I mean, I think for too long, the choice community have almost walked into this trap of using test scores and things to justify their existence, when in reality, something like open enrollment to me is just a moral issue. Like, we're creating a public service. And particularly if you're talking about within school district choice, right, everyone's paying into a district, and then they're getting, okay, you get to go to this one of five high schools, as opposed to we're all paying into it, shouldn't we have equal access to the same school? Um and so whether or not there's like a two percentage point math and reading, you know, increase, I, I could care less because to me, it's more about giving people the freedom, giving people the freedom to go to schools that match their needs. But also, on the other hand, giving schools more of an incentive and ability to create unique learning environments that can actually be catered to students. And so you mentioned Arizona earlier. I mean, there's like 300,000 kids in Arizona, I think, that are doing, doing open enrollment. It dwarfs like charter school, private school choice, everything combined. And you go to Arizona, and our friend Matt Ladner talks about this, you can go around Arizona, you can see school districts putting up billboards in other school districts to attract kids to go to that school and to that school district. And they'll say, we have a great STEM program, we have a great whatever, because they actually now have an incentive to go and actually reach out to kids. Um, there was an article many years ago, maybe five, six, seven years ago, in uh, Milwaukee, the local kind of Wisconsin uh uh, NPR station wrote an article where it was kind of a profile of, oh, because of these new voucher schools, um, public school principals are having to go out and like go into the community and knock on doors and try to explain to people the value of public schools. And it was written as a kind of like these principals are having to do this stuff that shouldn't be their job and outside of their job description. It's like the idea that someone going into a community to explain the offerings that they're giving and why they're better than the competition shouldn't be in shouldn't be in the job description of a principal. I think that's a great thing. Like you should be doing more funded, of that. By the way. Right. Yeah. Funded so, with those, the 
Dorsey's knocking on dollars, right? It's exactly. Like- and as you know, the idea that, you know, because of choice, we now have to like, you know, cater to people and figure out what they want and try to convince them to come and get service. I mean, this is like 101 stuff, but uh, we, we, we're in a system where people think that that shouldn't be the case for some reason. Another throwaway argument is like, you know, and kids aren't widgets and, you know, we don't want competition in the teacher's lounge and, you know, we're not a business and, and it's just like this weird high horse that they stand on. It doesn't translate to how the performance is going, but um, I've seen some recently uh, surveys of administrators in open enrollment systems. And one in particular one survey response in particular stands out based on what you're saying, which is a, a principal who said it forced him and his staff to get together and sit down all together and figure out who they are. Like, what is this school? So that if we want to have people come to us, we can say, you should come to the school because we are this, right? And it sort of forced them to take a look. And And the idea that we currently hold that I think is absurd is that every school in every neighborhood will be able to be everything to every kid. So if you have a kid who shows up who one day is going to cure cancer, and if you have a kid who shows up who has a a severe disability, like that school is going to be able to be the perfect fit for everyone on that whole spectrum. And, And that's absurd. Why yeah, not I mean, let people, school specialize? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, why not let school specialize and why not, you know, make this about mutual benefit where everyone's in the room because they want to be there because, oh, we want classical education. So we're going to fi- out, you know, look for in- environments that that have classical education or we focus on STEM, whatever it is. Um, I agree. I mean, there is this perception that uh, a single school can serve all people, but anyone with more than one kid will know that. For the most part, they're very different and they have different needs and they have different interests. And it's not admitting defeat if you say, oh, this is a STEM based school and um, families and kids who really want that are going to go into that. And this is a classical education school. Like, that's great. We need more dynamism. We need more optionality and we need more ability for educators who have a passion about a particular type of education to put out a shingle and say, hey, who else wants to be part of this and build communities that way? I mean, this is civil, this is civil society 101 stuff. Um, yet, you know, again, to the argument, it's, um, you know, the public schools will say, you know, our public schools are great and everyone loves us. We don't need this. And if we give it to them, they're going to leave. And so it's like this weird um, uh, conflicting statements they put out. I think for the most part, people are satisfied with their public schools and a lot of them are moving in you know, paying uh, paying a real estate premium to get into schools that work for their kids and that they like. But for a sizable p- percentage of the population, giving them the ability to create something new, to me, should be a win-win for everyone. Yeah. And that is one thing that's killing me in the discussion about Oklahoma in Missouri is the same people are standing up saying, we love our small rural high schools, schools, and they're a big part of our community. And they mean so much to us. And if we have open enrollment, everyone's going to leave them. So I'm like, yeah. Which one is it? Yeah. Everyone loves it or everyone is just dying for an exit ramp to get out of it. And it can't be both. Uh, we have a lot of schools, though. It, uh, some uh, legislators stood up and said, one of our, you know, we talked about a school last week that only had 12 people in their graduating class. This is going to kill that. And it's like, well, those 12 people are going to go out into college and career with kids who come out of gigantic suburban high schools with an extremely different experience. Should we be building a system 
designed to protect, like a protectionist system for schools with 12 graduating seniors. I don't know, but I think that it's really cool that we're going to see this play out in other states. We're going to be able to see, in Missouri anyway, I, I talk about Florida a lot and people in Missouri kind of just don't want to hear it. They don't really care about what Florida is not Missouri, neither is Arizona in any way, shape or form. But seeing it play out in Iowa and Arkansas is going to be very interesting because they're very similar and they have small rural schools. And a lot of our arguments are going to start to um, fall apart. Also, I wonder, because nationally we have declining K-12 enrollment, Missouri definitely has declining K-12 enrollment, if this is setting up states to compete with each other. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, I certainly think, um, you know, I, I can foresee a day. I mean, you mentioned kind of states in your area, like Oklahoma right now is talking about just giving a $5,000 refundable tax credit to kids for to families for private school education, $2,500 for families uh, who homeschool. <laughs> um, direct tax credit, refundable, you know, just goes right to them in the same way that a lot of other tax credits go. That is a could be a business selling point, right? That could be a way to relocate businesses. Hey, we're going to not only invest in public education, we're going to invest in all different forms of education so that when you grow your, you know, your your work, when workers are, are coming through uh, the education systems, they have lots of different optionality. That to me is as impactful as, hey, we have a great university research triangle or whatever it is else that, that you, you know, businesses are attracted with um, to come to states. So I think they're going to compete against each other. And, you know, your point about declining student enrollment, I think ESAs in particular are also a way to experiment with new ways of providing education because this idea that's been the prominent view of, of education for the past you know 50 years of we need to build this massive warehouse school that fits you know a thousand kids and you know we can only the, the the building can only really be used for schooling and how it's designed all that kind of stuff is going to have to go away because birth rates are down k-12 student enrollments down um you know teacher dissatisfaction is way up like how do we create environments where if you're an educator and you have an idea to educate 20 kids, you have an ability to do that without going and begging for a charter, begging for whatever, but actually just trying it out. And you try small, you you succeed small, you, you fail small, um, but you're trying these innovative things. It's kind of like the Etsy of the of the yeah. world, right? Like if That's I want to go what Al sell, Shanker said in 88, yeah. right? Right. If I want to go sell t-shirts, I'm not going to go to a mall and be like, hey, I need my my lease for my, you know, 3,000 square foot uh uh, shopping uh, area, like, no, you're going to try it online. You can try a little bit here, there, and the other. And that's kind of what we need more of in education is really helping educators who are entrepreneurial find paths to do that. And ESA is their, you know, focus on funding families, not necessarily institutions, I think is going to allow for a lot more of that. And trusting families, right? Yeah. That they can make these decisions because, um, you know, I believe that when it gets brought up that families can't make good decisions and parents won't do the right things for their kids, I think that's very insulting because for the most part, on the whole, every parent's doing the best they can for their kids. And then you have these, you know, terrible situations, which those parents shouldn't even be trusted with children. But for the most part, every kid parent's trying to do the best thing that they can possibly do for their kids and having buying power to do it empowers them and gets them more invested. So I don't like this argument that parents can't be trusted to do it. And again, we're going to see it play out because it is playing out in Arizona. And even in the states like Florida with massive amounts of school choice, you still don't see, uh, you know, uh, 
half of the parents taking up in the uh, school voucher programs. You know, you can participate in pieces of them in charter schools, but uh, you still see a lot of uh, most parents just going to their assigned public school. Yeah. I mean, to me, the goal isn't uh, having kids go from one seat to another. It's giving access to as many seats that can be conceivably possible to as many families right. so that they at least have the option. And if the public school is great for them, the charter school, private school, whatever it is, it's all about optionality and creating ways that are serving families. Um, yeah, that that to me is the is the key. And, and the, the thing about, you know, the thing that annoys me with the like, don't trust parents argument, the people who are making that have not changed anything about their perspective pre-pandemic and post-pandemic. It's like 2000, 2020 to 2023 never happened. Like, right. <clears throat> like there's just a, a gap in there. Like push comes to shove. We created a system that is not responsive to families and students. It's more responsive to the demands and needs of the adults in the system. We've seen this play out during the pandemic. And are there going to be some parents who are not going to be fully invested in ensuring their kids have the best education possible? Sure. I don't know that those kids are getting a bang up, you know, education through the public school system right now. Um, but this idea that we need to create, uh, we need to block families who are clearly invested in their children's education, block the ability to empower them with more resources to create education that works for them, because some small percentage won't, won't, uh, you know, do the utmost for their kids. It's kind of a crazy idea to me. Um, we, we, we saw in the pandemic what happened and what parents had to do and the sacrifices and all of that. Yeah, Yet we pretend like that never happened. We just, oh, no, that didn't happen. The schools failed the kids for two years. Therefore, what we really need to do is get the kids in those schools to make sure that and not give them any other options. It's just crazy to me. Um, where do you see the surge going next? If you do agree that there is like a surge in school choice happening right now? Yeah, I mean, I really like what Oklahoma's doing. I mean, um, it's a simple... It's a simple thing, right? Everyone raves about the child tax credit, right? That was, you know, right. if you read headlines for from a year care. ago, yeah. you know, hey, let's give families a refundable tax credit. Let's give, send them $600 into their bank account during the pandemic. Everyone raved about that. Everyone said it was great. Cut childhood poverty in half, all this kind of stuff. Um, do the same thing for education. It's very simple. You know, we, we can create ESA programs that take funds and gives parents an account and they have multiple use and all that kind of stuff, which is fine. But a refundable tax credit is actually kind of what Milton Friedman was talking about 70 years ago, right? Like, let's just, you know, cut the middleman out and know that we're going to pay, the, that society has made a decision that we're going to pay for education. And for those families who decide that they want something alternative, just give them refundable tax credit so, you know, they can go and do whatever they want. That, to me, yeah. is is kind of the ultimate goal and the vision. Um, What's so the do, likelihood of that passing? I mean, it it looks, it changes everything. I mean, I'm not on the ground there. I hear from time to time that it's likely, not likely. I think the conditions on the on the ground are changing. But I mean, if you would have asked me two years ago, if this, if a state would be this close to doing it, I would have said no. Um, but they're kind of at the 10, 5, 10 yard line. So, so we'll that's see. Awesome. Yeah. Yeah. That's, and Kansas has opened up a little bit more in the last couple of years too, with open enrollment. Um I think uh, I was talking to Jason Pedrick and he had said 10 states by 2030 a while ago. And uh, I think we're going to get there a lot sooner. Yeah. So. I mean, if we're talking about universal education choice, we have at least five now. Right. right. And, um, you know, with enough dollars to actually make, you know, there's lots of programs out there that are universal, but they don't give you enough money to actually make any sort of uh, conceivable 
decision about changing where you're at now. So now we have multiple states with $5,000 or more where families can go and, and kind of create unique learning environments. The other thing I'd say is you mentioned open enrollment. I do think open enrollment is something that, you know, will spread throughout the country. It's, you know, it's, there's, uh, it's hard to find very good objections to the idea that public schools should be open to all. I mean, this is in 1954 mm -hmm. uh, in Brown v. Board, the ruling said that if the government is going to create public schools, they need to be open to all, available to all. I, I would say right now, the system's available to all, but individual schools are far from available to all. Um, and, you know, here in Atlanta, I live not too far away from a little enclave, like three or four miles away, a little enclave of wealth that was created and developed with poverty all around it. Um, and you drive through that little enclave and you see, I'm a proud public school parent, you know, stickers and signs in the front yard. And you dig back and you look what happened 10 years ago. They lobbied the school board to create a new school for them, 10, 15 million dollars, and then drew a new school zone and only let people within that community participate. Yet these are the same communities that when you try to create new charter school laws or ESAs, they're demanding that it should not happen. They're advocating to stop giving other people choices. And it's, there's a hypocrisy to it that needs to be elevated and needs to be shown um, because it's, it's um, we cannot let this hypocrisy continue on. If they want to say, if they want to say kids can't come to their school, fine, but they cannot let other schools, uh, they can't block the, the creation of new schools because they have some crazy idea that it might be taking away kids or funds from their own community. Yeah, we have this all over St. Louis County. We have dozens of districts in one county that just got smaller and smaller, and it is redlining, and it just is. I mean, it's like these, I, I was talking to somebody, and I said, I think maybe we've reached peak school district era 10 years ago, and now we're it's on the decline, because these are not lines that you see from an airplane. These are, uh, you know, contrived lines that made sense if you were getting together as a community to hire a teacher and build a building and you're using all local funds to do it, that you have to, the people who are funding it get to use it. That's not the case anymore. States and the federal government are trying to equalize re resources through complicated formulas. It is not the case anymore. So it is time to sort of get rid of this notion that we can just draw lines around schools and uh, and keep kids out and put kids in, uh, you know, that I hope is going to sort of fade away as we move further into this century and post pandemic. I think that was a big takeaway from the pandemic from parents who moved to their best neighborhood, best school district, and it closed and they hated it, or they had to wear a mask and they hated it, or they put them in plexiglass boxes and they hated it, you know? So, so I think I hope that we're sort of moving beyond that because it is not good at a system level. Uh, it's time to redesign the system. I love that so many states are doing it. I um, I hope I'm hopeful on the implementation side. I might not be as optimistic as you are. There's going to be, I think there's going to be some growing pains there, but I hope we can work them out. So overall, uh, going forward in the next decade or so for public education, optimistic or pessimistic? We have a lot of learning loss. So how are you feeling about this generation? I mean, I'm optimistic in that, you know, uh, parents are now engaged. And I mean, my perspective pre-pandemic was that there were lots of families, lots of parents who were just fine, you know, putting their kid on the yellow school bus, dropping them off, picking them up. And, you know, that block of time that happens seven, eight hours during the day, that's someone else's problem. Let them take care of it. I'm going to pick them up and feed them and put them to bed and all that kind of stuff. And so now there's people who are actually expressing preferences. Like they have ideas about what works for their kid. 
my kid needs this. My kid wants this. This thing isn't working. You see this with kind of the reading war stuff. Like we now have parents who are engaged and I am of belief, many people aren't as we discussed, but I'm of the belief that more engaged parents who are kind of looking in and digging into what's working for their kids and fine tuning different services and approaches for them can only be a good thing for education, in my opinion. And we have now new markets, new responsive uh, programs that are going to give parents um, not just the ability to voice their concerns, but to actually exit right now. You know, gone are the days of this kind of dragged out IEP meeting where you sit there and all the powers on one side of the table and, you yep. know, you, you can go to court. Now it's like, I'm going to take my money and I'm going to go elsewhere. And this That's is how, how you drive improvement. So I'm very optimistic. Um, great. The conditions on the, on the ground, I think, are great. And, uh, you know, I'm excited to see what happens over the next five, 10 years. Well, thanks so much for joining us this morning to discuss it. I really appreciate it. Yeah. Appreciate it.